Rowan oh, Mason yep. is professor of English mm-hmm. at Dalhousie University in Halifax, and today we're going to talk off the cuff about Middlemarch and George Eliot's your strong suit, your favorite novel. So welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Well, let's start off with the fact that George Eliot lived a somewhat less than respectable life. Her life is certainly unusual by uh, Victorian standards, but I think even by her own standards it would be a bit unusual because she lived as a married woman with a man who was married to someone else at the time, so they couldn't be legally married. That's right. So she was married? She thought of herself as married. She insisted on being called Mrs. Lewis, but her husband, George Lewis, was married to, uh, to somebody else. He couldn't divorce his first wife because he was seen to have condoned her adultery by accepting into his family her children by her lover. How's that again? Lewis's first wife, Agnes, had an affair. They had a kind of open marriage originally, and she had some children by that other lover, and Lewis had, in effect, adopted them or accepted them into his family, and as a result, uh, he couldn't sue for divorce because he was taken to have condoned her adultery by accepting the results of it. So he was a a willing cuckold. That's right, until he discovered that he would rather be married to someone else, and then this became an obstacle. And she was kind of ugly. She has been called plain. In fact, some people have been very uncomplimentary about her looks. I always think she has a beautiful face. It looks thoughtful. There's actually quite different images of her. Some some are much more flattering than others. Yeah, that's right. But we don't talk about, you know, what did Henry James look like? We don't talk about, no, for that don't. matter, what Dickens looked like. So but it's interesting that it's hard to escape the question. Uh, Henry James uh, called her horse-faced, yeah. which is cruel. But he was also a little envious. Of her town, not her face. Well, she wasn't, apparently, she and Lewis, I think, were not very polite to him once when he came to visit. He came at a bad time, and they hadn't read, I think, the book that he'd sent ahead. And and yet he also said he found himself half in love with with her, despite her horse face, from listening to her speak. And that was one of the effects she seems to have had on many people, that listening to her, speaking with her, she had a beautiful speaking voice, apparently, seduced people intellectually. It's funny, I once asked Zadie Smith, in a public forum, if she felt that her looks, she's attractive, had an impact on what she wrote about, because if you're attractive, you're going to have a different life than if you're unattractive. And she raised her chin and nose and said, I don't answer those kinds of questions. Interesting. It's almost an implicit yes, isn't it? Well, there does seem to be some reason to think. I mean, George Eliot, Marion Evans would have known what she looked like, obviously. And, yeah, they had uh, mirrors back then. That's right. Some people have commented that she's often cruel to the beautiful characters in her novels, or, on the other hand, she's also careful to make her heroines attractive or beautiful, but they tend to be unconventionally beautiful. So, for instance, in Middlemarch, you have the paired women, Dorothea, who's dark and glowing, but not conventionally beautiful, and yet People see her as beautiful. Vibrant. But, yeah, through her yeah. character and, and yeah. her generosity. Her yeah. But there's Rosamond Vincy, who is the, the picture of perfect blonde English rose femininity who is who is treated quite scathingly by the by the narrator. That sometimes seems one of the great failures of Eliot's own doctrine of sympathy, that somehow she can't quite bring herself to be sympathetic to, to Rosamond. But she doesn't always do that. In Mill and the Floss, she has her heroine Maggie, who's also dark and, and vibrant, grows into beauty, but her lovely cousin Lucy is treated very sympathetically. You can tell she was very aware. Looks make a difference, and probably made a difference to her love life. So, for instance, she had a relationship with Herbert Spencer, the scientist philosopher, and philosopher, and he said that the lack of physical attraction for him was fatal, that she loved him, but he couldn't love her back as she wanted. 
And she was very miserable for a time after that, but met Lewis not too much later, and so they found happiness. Yeah, I don't think it's sexist to ask that question. When you talked about Elliot, men falling in love with her because of her intellect and the way she spoke, but I do think that, and this is sort of a historical, biographical, literary approach, I do think the person's life has an effect on what they choose to write about and how they choose to treat their characters. And I think it, it was well known um, and often treated in the literature that a woman's beauty was like a form of capital for her that she needed to try to, to invest. You know? And so one of the most famous treatments of that that I can think of is, is in um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's novel Lady Audley's Secret, which comes out not long after Eliot's first novel in which the female protagonist explicitly says, because I was more beautiful than my than my mate, I knew I could make a better marriage. Mm. I could I could invest this and get a high return. She doesn't use quite those words, but pretty close. So that, that female beauty was a, was a kind of commodity, would have been well known. And one of the, the miracles, if you like, of, of Eliot's life is that she she found that as a woman she could invest something else, right? She could invest her, her intellect and, and achieve not just artistic and intellectual acclaim, but also you know, sexual fulfillment. She had a very happy happy life on all fronts, as far as everybody knows, and that, um, I think, perhaps why she's sort of an inspiring figure, having broken broken the mold, that you, you succeed by looking by looking right. But it was a struggle for mm-hmm. her. Okay, speaking of struggle, I'm at page 278. I've been there for a while. Is it easy to, to summarize the plot very quickly or not? One of the crucial features of Middlemarch is that it's a multi-plot novel, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the challenges, and probably rather than picking it up at that same page every time and trying to keep on going, it's better to go back and start at the beginning and make sure you know what all the pieces are. Uh, I mean, in some ways, the plot of Middlemarch, one of the plots of Middlemarch, which can seem like the central plot of Middlemarch, the story of Dorothea Brooke, is not very complicated. She marries the wrong man, she's happily saved by the fact that he's older and, and, and dies, and she gets the chance uh, another chance at happiness. So it's as simple, it's as simple as that. Mm. What Eliot does with that is what's remarkable, and that by itself is not a remarkable plot at all. Every 19th century novel has a plot somewhat like that. Often they don't marry the first person, but they fall for the wrong person and have to be corrected, just like Elizabeth falls for Wickham and eventually realizes he's the wrong guy in, in Pride and Prejudice. It's a very familiar, a familiar story. Familiar that's, life right. that's right. That's right. She has Dorothea make that marriage, and therefore she gets to show you not just the courtship phase, but the disastrous mm. union, which is... And there's sort of a shattering of her uh, dream of an intellectual match. Exactly. Uh, she thinks she's chosen uh, someone who will help her have a meaningful life. Mm. You know, It's not yeah. everybody's standard for, for the ideal husband, but this is what she's looking for. She feels uh, quite explicitly as a woman that she mm. doesn't have wide range of vocation. She has relative wealth, uh, she has position, but she she's not satisfied with that. She wants to do something that matters, mm-hmm. something that will make a difference in the world. She can't figure out what it is. She can't see a storyline unfolding for herself outside of, of marriage. Early in the novel, she's young, she's barely 18, you know, so she's very young. But it's um, so wonderful, her desire, her curiosity, her, her innocent desire to fill her brain mm-hmm. with the the most important ideas. That's right, it's a tremendous time. idealism, and, mm-hmm. and it's a, partly a spiritual idealism, and she has the unusual fantasy that you'll find this fulfillment through knowledge, through wisdom, and, and then in walks a scholar, you know, who seems to her, because she is so ignorant, really, but aspiring to knowledge, she makes a terrible mistake. And one of the frustrations of the first part of the novel is that we know perfectly well it's a mistake, everybody around her knows it's a mistake, mm-hmm. and you have to suffer through watching her 
make this terrible mistake for all the best reasons. I certainly I teach the novel regularly, and, and students sometimes find her very frustrating or, or annoying. She's not altogether sympathetic. She's a little priggish. She's a mm. little moralizing. She is inexperienced. She needs to be chastened a bit and brought into a stronger connection with reality. So one of the major themes of the novel is, is trying to see the world as it actually is, not as you fantasize that it is or imagine. So she has this picture in her head, if I meet a man of a certain kind, he will, he will help lift me to this new, this new level. And in walks this man, and she puts that hat on him. He must be the guy. She novel. romanticizes it. She sees what she wants to see. Yeah, she's blind to the fact that he's an old, stodgy BS artist. Yes, he's just the most tedious, boring, small-minded... But it takes time to learn these things about people. And, of course, one of the things is that she doesn't have that kind of time. But the narrator says at one point that she's filling up all blanks with unmanifested perfections. You know, Anytime there's a, something she sees that's not perfect with him, she imagines it away. She tells a story about it or, or kind of mm. fills it in with reflection, as the narrator says, of her own ardor. She has this passion, this enthusiasm for life, mm. and it colors what she looks at. So this becomes an ongoing motif among many of the plots in the story, people's tendency to, to see what they want to see or to see what they expect to see, um, what they hope to see, especially if it suits their their desires. So mm-hmm. the next plot that we get introduced to is, is another marriage plot, which follows a very similar pattern. Lydgate, Dr. Yeah. Lydgate, um, and he meets Rosamund Vincy, and Rosamund, for instance, has a fantasy of a mysterious outsider because all the residents of Middlemarch too boring, too unromantic for her. She wants to, to also to rise, although she wants mostly to rise socially. And in walks Lydgate and she thinks he must be the guy. Well, he has aristocratic connections and he's not from Middlemarch and he's exactly what I've been waiting for. He's my, he's my knight in shining arm. Mm-hmm. Armory's going to rescue me from my dreary, boring, predictable provincial life. She it's, it's almost like taking people and using them in a way. It's like, to fulfill your, your own little story yes, that you're telling. And, 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 and you forget they have a story. I suppose what they do is they ignore the proof that these people aren't their vision of what they That's want. Right. They're not desperate, though. No, they're just desiring. They're limited. They don't know much. They're kept relatively sheltered. They're not given rich educational opportunities. They're not given a lot of experience of the world. And they, they understand their major plot is going to be to get married. I mean, that's that their job description. Reading it as a, as a 21st century, enlightened, freed, the perspective of, of our society, mm-hmm. it's, it's sad isn't it? That All that is energy seems so so constrained and in, in such a narrow... Well, and yes, you know. th- this is the only way that a woman could get ahead or, or avoid poverty, is that they have to genuflect to the male. One of the questions that, that people have asked about Middlemarch is, I mean, George Eliot did otherwise. She was a provincial girl with, with uh, ambitions, and she became probably the greatest novelist you know, in England of the 19th century. Why doesn't she give her heroines that opportunity. Why do her heroines suffer their ambitions to be so constrained? And and it's the case across her body of work. One of the answers is that she's a a relentless realist, and she understood herself to be exceptional. That is, that did not happen for most women, and it was a very hard path to follow, and it required exceptional dedication. Her own path. Her own path. It could have been set up as a criticism of the system, so that you read this and you, you become frustrated. 
you see the limitations, and, and maybe that's part of her thinking, would you say? Uh, that's exactly the, the argument I, I usually make about the ending of the novel. Um, so of course, I'm not alone in that. It's a disappointing ending. It's not disappointing altogether to the people involved in it, but to us it may be disappointing. But it's commented about Dorothea, for instance, that there were many people around her who felt she should have done something, but nobody could say exactly what. And it leaves us with a question. Uh, what? Why not? Why couldn't she do more? Chafing at that constraint. Yeah. If, you, if you compare it to the end, of something like Pride and Prejudice, it, it's an enormous wish fulfillment fantasy, the ending mm. of Pride and Prejudice. Um, but it's this so is much more realistic, as you say. At the end of Pride and Prejudice, what, what are you going to complain about? She's got the best yeah. guy in the best house. Yeah, you know, she has, <laughs> what more could she want? Yeah. You, you get the yeah. feeling that somehow she's overcome the obstacles. And her mom's pretty happy about that, And her that mother's too. very happy, and he's tall. You know, what more could, what more could, <laughs> a, could anybody ask? Right. Uh, it kind of is immobilizing in the sense that you're happy, you're finished, you, you feel that sense of, of conclusion and, yeah. and it's joyful and it's everything, all your wishes have come true. So it has that kind of fairy tale quality to it. The ending of Middlemarch is not like that. It, well, Lydgate is, is a ruined man, not financially, but, no. but morally and personally. He's not the man he wanted. He, he hasn't become the man he could have been, mm. and we, we see that failure. I'm breaking one of my own rules, I'm giving you spoilers here, mm. if you're still on page... 278. Um, Dorothea has not accomplished something great for the world. There are small happinesses, small successes. Which again is a lesson in itself. Uh, what? That we're all idealistic, that uh, we, need to, we need to know our own limits so that our expectations aren't too high? We need to c conform them to what's realistic for us. But by showing us characters who are, who are kind of pushing the, the limits of that, uh, she helps us to see how, how gradually the horizon gets extended. Okay. But they're, they're pushing the limits, but in a way they're going blasting ahead, and they're really getting shattered. But in our dissatisfaction, we start to bring changes. So the people who are looking at Dorothea, even in her book, and saying, she should have somehow been able to do something. In that question, like, why didn't she get to do something more? The beginnings of, of changes, right? Why didn't she? Well, let's answer that question. Well, because, and you start to answer, as you did, for instance, you know, she, she doesn't have the independence or the autonomy to mm. make decisions for herself, or she's not given the education that would let her yeah. make better decisions. Or the employment opportunities aren't that's there for independence. What is she going to do? Yeah. And that, that's a historical question, and it's a political question, and it's an economic question. And so if you're asking questions about those things rather than taking them for granted, then you're starting to, to bring about change. The ending of The Mill and the Floss is another famous example. Yes. Why does the novel have to end that way? Yeah. Why isn't there someplace else for these people to go? Then you have to again try to answer that question. Well, because where else could Maggie go? What other story are you imagining that's realistic? So you're really caught in, in that. It's an aesthetic principle for her, but also a moral principle. But it's also a social commentary, mm -hmm. would you say? It's a desire. If her desire in writing the novel was to leave the reader frustrated and disappointed because of these shortcomings in society, that's the way to foment change. Yes. And would you say yes. that this was... It's, it's quite a scathing her. critique, really, of and the word that recurs in Middlemarch is the word petty. Um, Dorothea is not constrained because she's put in prison or something, right? It's just little, little things. But cumulatively, and one of the, the lines of metaphor she uses all the time is the metaphor of the web. And in this case, it's like a spider web. It's sticky. It's entangling. It's these little threads. And the same uh, imagery is used for, for Middlemarch, gradually getting hampered by these threads. You think you can just go do what you want. Legate yeah. believes he can just go and be the kind of doctor and the kind of scientist he wants. And never mind the yeah, petty politics, as he says. you know. Yeah. But he can't live in the community without getting caught up in 
political decisions in the community, voting getting the for funding, people, and, getting the funding yeah. for the hospital, or compromising his principles to, to get the funding. You can't do that. You can't just press on. You are enmeshed in the social world. And so after a while, it's like trying to lift your feet when they're, they're bound with little sticky threads. You know, yes, you're still moving forward, but in this very limping and halting sort of way. And if you're Lydgate, you may just eventually get tired and kind of sit out and just give up on, on your other ambitions and do what's easiest. If you're Dorothea, she gets a chance to, to try again. So George Eliot had the intent to convey messages, lessons to her readership. Yeah, it was very common in the 19th century to assume that that a novel was, was not just an aesthetic experience, but yeah, it was a moral and, and, or, and didactic today is, is a fraught word. Yeah. People think didactic is a criticism, so maybe I could substitute pedagogical, that yeah. it's a learning experience and, and a chance to learn vicariously. And in fact, contemporary research today on fiction shows that, that that is one of the things it does, is that we get to practice things at a kind of low risk, right? You get the vicarious experience of it and it affects your thinking about that problem. You get to try out a solution, try out an attitude, try out a feeling. And one of the things she's doing is precisely that, a kind of modeling for us, a kind of philosophical problem and a moral problem and, and walking you through it. But she's also teaching us her version. So it really is a very good novel to teach to young undergrad. It's a little disillusioning to, to start to tell them that, that they won't get everything that they want and that history may be against them and that marriage may not be as fun. I actually taught a seminar which we read a number of novels all focusing on life after marriage in the 19th century and, and I did have a couple of students say, you know, I've, I've been thinking again about my plans to get married. One person said she was asking her fiancé to read some of the books. I thought, well, that was a little startling. It didn't mean we don't talk in those very personal terms ordinarily in the class, but clearly the way the novels were exploring marriage as a condition of compromise was not what they were familiar with. We're all very familiar with the courtship plot. It's the mm. standard plot of the romantic comedy film. You meet, there's obstacles, but, you know, true love triumphs in the end, and then you come to a dead stop. You know, you're married, that's it. And George Eliot depicts marriage as being a very difficult endeavor. I mean, you enter into it voluntarily, but once you're in it, it stops being a choice and becomes a duty. Right now, you owe things to other people. It's funny, and we were talking about watching the Tudors, the, the TV program, and Anne Boleyn's father knew that Anne was very attractive and smart. His ticket to dukedom or power. Right. Is, again, she's like a kind of capital in the best yeah, possible location. Yeah. yeah, I don't know enough to say whether that's a good depiction of, of actual early modern mm. attitudes, but I know that, that it certainly translates very well into a 19th century context, except that over the over the century, the issue of women's autonomy was being increasingly debated. So I think that's why you see it so fraught in these novels, that you see the novelists, again, exploring the, the limits that women are faced with and, and the challenges that poses for their autonomy and their desire to kind of take charge of their own life and, and the moral inconsistencies of it in, in a world in which prostitution is called you know the great evil. At the same time, there's a very clear understanding that marriage is a kind of entering into a trade, sex for money. I need a living and you want a wife, so here's the deal. And people talked about it in, mm. in those terms. So it creates all kinds of strange contradictions and tensions. And even if a couple was very well-meaning and didn't want to be in an unequal relationship, of course the husband legally for most of the century had all the, all the economic power and legal power. The Middle March is a lot about that, although for one thing it is set earlier in the century, it's set back mm. in the 1820s and 1830s, so um, Eliot's very careful to, to place her stories in that way. I think in some ways it's about a more general problem, the general human problem that we started with, the problem of perception, the problem of trying to react whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, to what the realities are of the world around you and not some fantasy of them. And, and there's two parts, I suppose, to that. One is to see it and to see people 
just the really hard part, you know, for who they actually are. And then whoever they are, unpleasant and petty and small-minded as they might be, you have to respond to them with sympathy. So that's the biggest, I think, moral impulse of, of the novel. Once Dorothea discovers that her husband is not the man that she thought he was, her work is only just beginning. Now she has to regroup and approach him with the sympathy that comes not from saying, oh, you're such a wonderful man, I'll do whatever you want, but the much harder job is saying, you're really not a very nice man. You're sad and you're needy and I promised to be your wife and now I have to by, sympathize. By my, that's right. Uh, by and that's when the work gets difficult. It's, it's, mm. uh, Elliot points out in her nonfiction writing, it's perfectly easy to be fond of people who are charming, you know, but it, it's very mm. challenging to recognize people for being, again, petty and small-minded or imperfect or, or ignorant or, or in any number of ways ugly to look at. Well, what we do now, of course, is, is we divorce. Whereas no, back, not we, an option, of we, course, in the 1830s, not even until the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, and even then it's still very difficult and, and public well, and scandalous. The stigma and all of that. What is she saying? That to be stoic and to live by your word and to tough it out and We place a very high priority today on getting what you want or what you want in yourself. That's happiness. She placed a very high value on, on duty and on, on meeting obligations. Which is what her husband in real life did. That's right. I mean, he, he couldn't just throw his hands up and, and be done with it, right? Mm. And and she was not a, she was not doing this out of religious reasons. She's not a, a believer in God. She's not a, a Christian. She Although just, these are Christian these themes. Are, these are kind of secularized versions of, of Christian themes. But she really felt it was a kind of moral obligation that we have mm. towards other, other people in the world. So one of the larger projects of her fiction in Little March is probably the most beautiful example of this because it's such a, a beautiful novel, is this combination of the, the pressure towards realism, which is the aesthetic she undertakes in her fiction, but then the movement from realism to sympathy. That effort defines morality. So one of the interesting things about Middlemarch, one of the impressive things, is that she found a way to dramatize and, and give literary form to those ideas. So the novel is, is about, at a thematic level, constantly this problem of perception. And it's built to, to keep complicating our, our idea of perception, like, for instance, to, to acknowledge that any event, you, know, you and me sitting here talking, or Rosamond meeting Dr. Lydgate, or Dorothea meeting Mr. Kasavin, it's at least two events. You know, it's your event and my event, it's Dorothea's event. Um, each of those experiences is part of its own story. So each character is the center of their own story. So the multiple plots in the novel are one way of trying to remind us that, say you have a room with ten people in it, this mm. is an exercise I sometimes do with my class, say, how would you deal with trying to explain this moment, where we all came from, why we're here, how far back do you have to go to explain your motives for ending up here in this room for this class right now? How long is that book going to get before you're satisfied you've actually done justice to all ten people in the class to say how we came to all be here together today, and then follow us to where we go next. When you start to imagine the layers of narrative that are actually involved in depicting a sing you know, what you want to call a single event. As you said earlier, there's an architecture to this, there's That's a solidity to this as opposed to That's a linear. Right. That's right. You know, there's a multi-dimensional... How do you do that? Well, there's, of course, you can't altogether do it because narrative starts and moves forward and, and just it has that linear quality. But you can make somebody do it again. So she'll give you a scene and bring you up to a certain point and then say, ah, well, okay, somebody else is coming into this room or this moment right now. How did we get there? 
we go back chronologically in time and, and follow that narrative forward back to that scene. And get their perspective. That's right. And so you're reminded that at this moment with all these people together, it means something different to each each one of them. There's a moment in in Middlemarch where Rosamond is walking with Dr. Lydgate. They're in the kind of early stages, I think, of their courtship. And she's pretty keen because it looks like his medical career is, is picking up. And down the road rides a, a messenger come from Lowick to say that Mr. Kasabin is sick and can Lydgate come and help. And now you go back and you find out how Mr. Kasabin got sick and, and why did the messenger end up coming down there. And you realize in Rosamond's story, this is part of Lydgate's rise to wealth and what she hopes, you know, wealth and prosperity. And so it's part of her rise, too, that she dreamed of. He really is the rich outsider who's going to make her happy. For Lydgate, this is a professional turn. He's hoping to broaden his practice and everything else. He's not really excited about serving the rich people. He wants to help the poor people, but he needs to make money. So it's part of his story. So that's good news for them, but it's not such good news for the guy who got sick, right? So then you follow the idea of that sort of collapse of somebody's health and is entering into a kind of decrepit phase, leading him towards towards death and the sort of desperation that starts to follow on him as a, as a result of that. And for Dorothea, who's married to this much older man and now seeing her work changing from being one of a kind of acolyte with a mentor to being a sort of nurse to a, a rather mm. petty and unsatisfactory husband who, who wants her to work on this project that she increasingly realizes is valueless, but she feels pity for him because he's getting sick. So all of these things and more are going on in one of those encounters. And you know what's so interesting is that there's the structure that you've just mm-hmm. spoken about that is one lesson, and the lesson is that each one of us has all sorts of aspects to mm-hmm. our own stories that interact with others. That's the one reality. But each one of these characters are blinkered to that very fact. Exactly. Because they're preoccupied with their own experience, right? And the narrator in the novel takes occasionally a kind of overt, intrusive attitude to us to, to break up our own complacency. We like to start a novel with all of the characters along through the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I find when people bog down in Middlemarch, it's often at the point where you leave Dorothea and switch to a bunch of other characters. And you're like, well, what happened to the real story, the one I started with? You yeah. know, it's about Dorothea. It says chapter one, Miss Brooke. And I'm thought, sort of falling in love with her. or Yeah, you know, I want to know how's this going to em- turn out. Empathizing with her. And yeah. now I'm with all these other people. It frustrates our desire for that one story. There's a famous moment in the chapter 29 when the narrator begins one morning not long after her arrival back at Lowick, Dorothea, and then the narrator interrupts herself and says, but why always Dorothea? And gives us a little lecture on, aren't there other people? Isn't there someone else in this marriage? What about her husband? How do you think he feels about this? And it's a very jarring moment. It's, it's a very kind of postmodern moment. You know, mm-hmm. if she weren't a 19th century novelist, we'd give her all kinds of credit for being But Cervantes did the same things that's right, and, and, years earlier. That's right. And, and if you go um, back through the tradition, you discover that there was nothing to be discovered by um, in terms of, of cool textual to a game. So she won't leave us be, you know, and, and, and she wants us to be very aware of that. And there's another point uh, where she uses a, a famous parable of a pier glass, which is sort of like a mirror. She points out a kind of optical trick you can play, and I've never tried this myself, but I have colleagues who say they tried it and it does work. If you put a candle in front of the, the random scratches on the mirror, it look like they're in a in circle around the, the reflection of the candle. But, of course, they're just random. It's the candle's light, as she explains, that makes it seem that way. And she says, okay, well now, imagine the candle is somebody's ego. Right? It's their perspective, it's their point of view, and that's, that's the thing. We look at the world and see it all arranged around us. Yet, of course, it isn't. It's all sorts of other stories and events and other people. Everybody's got a candle, you know, everybody's got a point of view. And so the work of the novel is to make us more aware of multiple points of view. 
And so she'll never leave you in any one point of view. Sometimes even within one sentence, she'll say, ah, but, and move you around. And so she's trying to make you replicate mentally what she sees as this important moral step. Get out of your own shoes. You know, don't mm. blow out your candle, but imagine moving it. How does this look? Especially, again, to that person you're not feeling sympathetic towards. Okay, so you married this guy, and is he ever a disappointment to you? But how do you think he's feeling right about now? You know, he's sick, his work is going nowhere. I know you don't like him much, but don't you owe him your sympathy? That really is a Christian message, isn't it? It could be seen that way. I think she didn't mm. see that specific sort of doctrinal teachings of the Christian church were necessary to come to that conclusion. It's a very simple idea, in a way. Mm. And look at things from somebody else's point of view and then respond to the moral obligations that are Or treating that. someone as you would have them treat you. And her characters often fail at it. But the ones in her novels who are the closest villains tend to be the ones who are most absolute egotists, who are least able to break out of, of their own perspective and enter sympathetically into the feelings of somebody else. They're dangerous. They'll act out of sheer unadulterated will for their own satisfaction, like Rosamond, who drags poor Lydgate down and, and down. And not by dramatic acts, right? It shall often remind you it's the little things. And mm. they eat away incrementally at your good intentions or, or your goodwill. The thing about Middlemarch is it's a it's an encyclopedic sort of book. There's all kinds of other references and allusions. She's interested in the development of medicine and in scientific discoveries, and her metaphors are rich in all these areas, and her political references are rich. But to me, anyway, the heart of the book really is this idea. You have an idea about how people should live in the world, and then you use your novel without making it any of the less artistic. And that, mm. that's the fusion, to try to achieve something that brings together your idea in the right literary form for it, so that you feel it on your pulses, kind of, rather than somebody lecturing you. You know, mm -hmm. I could tell somebody over and over again, you really need to try to look at this from somebody else's point of view, of nothing like the same effect as actually, again, sort of mentally being brought around to see that other... Well, other and she's showing other people going through these very, very difficult transitions and epiphanies and understanding. As you say, thankfully, by reading novels, you're able to see what could happen if you took certain right. paths. That's right. She she shows you moments, to use a kind of Christian terminology, moments of, of grace, where someone will really have to struggle against all their own selfish sorrows. And, and when you get to the story of Mr. Bulstrode and, and his wife towards the end of the novel, you'll recognize the moment when it comes, and, and Mrs. Bulstrode faces a, a moment of, of crisis, and her husband, quite an unlikable character, and yet gets a, a lot of pages explaining, again, how he has come to be the man that he is, and what the world looks like, and what he's trying to do, and what he's failing to do, and he reaches this crisis, and his wife is able to turn to him with sympathy, sort of renouncing, in a way, all her own hopes that she had for her family, and for her future, and, and to take on with him this life of failure that's the result of his actions. It's a beautiful moment. I think it's potentially a troubling moment, and, and for me, there's a line in The Mill and the Floss where her narrator remarks that the responsibility of tolerance lies with those of wider vision. And I think the risk that she's always raising for us is that the better people in her novels will sacrifice to the worse people because they're the ones who are capable of sympathy and, and sacrifice. So they're, Dorothea, the ones who, they're the ones who be taken advantage of. That's right, or voluntarily, though. That's the thing. So Dorothea nearly does that. She nearly promises away her life, and only the novelist's intervention, sort of like a divine intervention, mm -hmm. comes and smites down her uh, husband just before uh, Dorothea is about to make her, him a promise that will bind her for the rest of her life, even after his death, because she has to, or she, she would betray her own virtues, her own moral principles, her own moral beauty would be corrupted, and yet it's too big a sacrifice, she shouldn't make it, and, and I think Elliot hasn't always helped us see how to rescue ourselves from that. It would be a dangerous world, I think, if the, if the people who were least sympathetic were always 
winning mm-hmm. because they're not capable of, of, of it and, and the sympathetic people are capable of yielding kindly, you know, generously. I'm speaking with Rowan Mateson, a professor of English at Dalhousie University. It's difficult not to get psychological with this in the sense that you know, there are certain people who are naturally rescuers. They need to break that cycle in order to be healthy. Yeah, that's an interesting word you use to rescue. Right? I think that what she's striving for through Dorothea's story is, is to help us find that point of balance, for instance, mm-hmm. where you do finally speak for yourself and claim what you want. You want to be generous and sympathetic, but you don't want to er- erase or obliterate yourself. You're, you have your a certain standing. That's too, right. Is... And I think it's not a coincidence that the man that Dorothea marries is named Will. You know, that she mm-hmm. has to express her own will. It's always the ir- irresistible mm-hmm. pun to me. And it is her act of will that, that claims him for her eventually. She has to break through all the conventions that are that are separating them, which they both kind of feel are arbitrary and unnecessary. But but how how can they speak about it? And Dorothea finally says, I cannot bear it. She says, my heart will break. It's foolish and a little bit melodramatic, and she's still barely older than she was when the novel started, so mm-hmm. it, it's got that kind of adolescent impetuosity to it almost. But behind it, this great adult experience of knowing the cost of not having love, of not having what you want, is a little bit of romantic wish fulfillment in, in those scenes, mm-hmm. and I think, too, there's a, a little bit of cheating it that it happens during a thunderstorm, and, <laughs> and a little bit of that pathetic fallacy that nature is, is turbulent and their emotions are stirred up. But yeah. she's paid the price, too, for it. That's yeah. true, and there there were no thunderstorms where, where her first husband was concerned. Yeah. None at all, as, as far as we know. You know, there there were no sparks of any kind. So she's earned her happiness. I think I was mentioning to you in our discussion before when I first read the novel when I was about eighteen. I read it as this as a wonderful love story, yeah. and I think that was the story I was following all the way through. And yeah. that's I think a good indication again that I was a kind of victim, if you like, of what the novel is is trying to teach me about, which is that romanticization. I, I saw. Dorothy, I you saw Will. Yeah, yeah, somehow I knew that that was what it was really about. Mm. I thought I knew that. And, mm. and a lot of the other stuff seemed sort of peripheral. But even so, with that happiness, and we're told that Dorothy is happy, she never regrets the decision that she's made, she, she's very um, content mm. in the life that she gets. There is a sense of letdown that she began at the beginning of the novel as somebody with some kind of undefined potential and this yearning. She's, she's described as, as, as Maggie in the novel of Floss having a yearning for something, something to make her life meaningful. In this age, she could have been a, a brilliant professor. That's right, or, or a, a writer, or a philanthropist, something. And yet, what? Where and again, uh, members of George Eliot's own circle did accomplish some of those kinds of things. But mm. they were a generation or more later than Dorothea's story is set. And also, it was a very unusual path to follow. But she wasn't trying to fill our heads with, with fantasies. She was trying to get us to grapple with what she felt were some core truths that we deal with in our lives that everyone does yeah I think that the need to reconcile yourself with reality is mm. part of growing up and Virginia Woolf famously called Middlemarch the only English novel written for grown-up people and there's been a lot of discussion about what exactly she meant by that A.S. Byatt says in, a, in an interview that she thinks it's because it's a novel about adult sexuality I think that's not something my students would ever have noticed but I think that's a that's possibly a part of what it is. But I think surely part of that also is that it's a novel about that movement from when you're young and you, know, you think you're immortal, mm. you can drink, you can mm. drive fast and not wear your seatbelt. You know, you have this idea that it'll be your turn and you'll get to do everything. And then gradually you realize there, there are constraints. You do, but you talked about the disappointment that perhaps some of your students would have felt. But you don't want to stamp out that flame, that idealistic no. flame. 
because really the best things in life are when you do have hopes and dreams and when you do work toward them and you and you don't let adversity get you down. Well, I think um, for me in the novel, the, in the foil character that we're given uh, for Dorothea is her sister Celia. Well, there's Rosamond, but also right close to hand, Dorothea has a sister who's very pragmatic, never dreaming anything out of mm. the ordinary. Low expectations. Low expectations. Mm. She's always described as talking in a sort of staccato tone, and I, I think that, you know, the implication is she's just right on point all the time. She, she is rather a dull mm-hmm. character in some mm-hmm. ways, but she's useful for, for Dorothea, who she calls Dodo, which I think, again, is, is also suggestive of Dorothea's folly. But I really think it's much, much better, we see through the novel, it's much better to be Dorothea yeah. and to fail than to be Celia and, and get your just desserts. And Celia's fine, she's pleasant, she's happily married, everything's okay mm. for her. Mm. But she's not where your, your investment is. Your, your hopes are invested in Dorothea because she has something else. She hopes for something else. Mm. And yes, she's wrong and it's foolish and she's a dreamer and, and you wish she didn't have to be so disappointed. And again, it's in that wish to bring your desires and the reality closer together yes. that we move forward, right? As a yeah. society or as a family or as a marriage or whatever, that effort to try to reconcile those things. As a result of that, you guarantee yourself a better likelihood of happiness. I might be both, right? You, you take the risk of, of either the catastrophic disaster the or the, the triumphant success, but, you, but taking the risk is... It's like the golden mean. It's mm-hmm. a, it, don't extinguish that hope, but understand that, that if you're blind, right. then things are going to screw up. There's a line in, in Browning, a famous line, you know, man's reach must exceed yeah. his grasp, or, or what's That's a heaven for, right? Yeah. There's that, that sense that in the in the yearning and the striving is part of what's ultimately valuable, the sort of, if only, if only I could bring this about. And yet for Dorothea, it's a tremendously important experience to discover, for instance, that she was mistaken, and to try to recalibrate her hope. It's like being a, a, a pragmatic idealist. Something like that. It seems oxymoronic, doesn't yeah. it? But she also tries to find things that she can actually do. So she never stops trying to make the world a better place. She's so sweet. She is. Yes, I I think... Is that why you love the novel? I think I love the novel because the parts of it never disappoint. There's always something else in it that's smarter or more interesting than I had seen the time before. And because I mostly focus on the aspects we've been talking about, I, I do feel there's a whole area of the novel, the whole aspect of the scientific and the medical research, for instance, that that I've never really been able to fully understand and, and learn enough about. There are a lot of, of artistic allusions and references, but there's always more, and, and that's very that's very satisfying. It's also but a sign of great work. I think yeah. so, that it's got ideas. Endlessly, uh, endlessly rewarding. But I, I love the book also because I do think it, it's not a great story, but it's many great mm. stories. There are three central marriage plots in it. Dorothea's, of course, and then Rosamond and Lydgate, and then the Fred and Mary, uh, Fred Vincy and Mary Garth, who are on a kind of lower register, but in some ways embody many of the ideals of the novel. Uh, Fred has to learn to grow up, and Mary is, is the, the realist who helps him kind of get his feet on the ground, and they have a, an affection rooted in childhood, which for George Eliot is always a very precious, precious thing, those, those earliest bonds, the brother and sister bonds, the family bonds. You, you don't turn your back on your past. Every one of them is, is satisfying. It's also one of the rare books, in my experience, where you can take a paragraph almost at random and enjoy the, the intelligence of the writing yes. over and over again. It's a difficult book to read as a result sometimes. I was going to make that very point, that in most books you'll have phrases, you'll have sentences that are sublime, mm-hmm. you know, metaphors that just... Something stands out. Yeah. 
but here it's the paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And often you want to trace it through the process of thought. Um, one of the exercises that I like to do is to trace through use of pronouns. If anything sounds dry, you know, mm -hmm. that, that probably right there. But one of the things she'll very often do is start in the third person, talking about she did this, he did that, and so on. And then she'll kind of shift bit by bit into, we do that, don't we? You know, and you've discovered that you've been brought into this kind of relationship with her mm -hmm. characters, because mm -hmm. it's not about them, it's about us and our relationship to the world and how we operate in the world. And just in the space of a sentence, you've been moved around to that. There's a wonderful passage where Mr. Kasabin is, is contemplating his own death, which is something that everybody eventually has to face. They have to say to themselves, this isn't some abstract thing. One day this is this will be me. And that's exactly the process that he goes through. And she starts by describing Mr. Kasaba and then goes through the general statement, we all must die, and then comes down to, you know, death grapples us and really brings it home to what you have to realize. And it's affecting your own life and it, it changes, I assume, the way you look at death. I think it, it could, you know. It certainly... It's, it, it doesn't let you just sit there and, and imagine it's all about somebody else. It, it really mm -hmm. tries to to bring you into that. And yet it can be extremely and gratifyingly poetic language, very mm. concrete, very specific. And wry, too. And very, uh, and very comic. Yes. And uh, that it's so funny is one of the things that surprises me most years when I get a chance to reread the whole thing. Like, mm. I've forgotten what a funny book this is. Mrs. Cadwallader, one of the best characters, many really great one-liners, and many comments of the narrators, too, just giving a little tweak to somebody's self-satisfaction. Many scenes that stand out. The way she has the uh, amazing intellect. I think that's what I appreciate mm. to, to trace them. Mm. Dorothea has a boudoir where she lives after she's married, and and her experience of being in that room changes every time she's in it because Dorothea is changing the room, just sitting there, mm. but she sees it differently every time. And that ability to conjure up again how we affect our own perceptions just by the development of, of our mind. Beautifully done. Uh, I think Dorothy is a great character. I certainly talk with a lot of people who don't like her as much as, as I do. Maybe you know, maybe it speaks to a little lingering idealism mm -hmm. of my own. Just finally, uh, what advice would you give the reader when they approach Middlemarch? What should they do to get the richest possible experience from the book? I think they should read it and savor it. I think rather than burdening themselves with footnotes and a whole apparatus to make sure they're getting all the details, I think you want to try to just read it all the way through and, and follow the characters dramatically and, and let them catch you up so that you care what's happening to them. And then at that point, I think the way the prose is doing that will start to open itself up to you. You'll start to appreciate the way that through the course of a paragraph, your favorite character is being sort of morphed into somebody else or is being taken over by somebody's point of view. and and the, the beauties will unfold. But mostly I would say you, you have to be patient. It's not a book that offers quick and easy pleasures. It doesn't have the kind of rapid-fire dialogue. Well, it does actually, it, it parts as Pride and Prejudice, but it's separated by lots of commentary and lots of exposition. You have to give yourself over to it and, and treat it almost philosophically. In that, it's not that different, I suppose, from a lot of other large 19th century novels. Yeah, I keep thinking of War and Peace. Was this the British War and Peace? Well, in terms of, of just sheer quality, I think, and, and intellectual substance, I Brett. think it's at, it's at the peak. Yeah, breadth. It's a funny sort of thing to say that in a way, because, it, again, there's a way in which its stories are very modest. Remember, I could give you a, a few words to summarize mm. Dorothea's story. It's how that's attached, right? And I think that's a Tolstoyan gesture, too. Yeah. yeah, it's attached mm. outward into society and history and the sort of unfolding. It starts with a comment about St. Teresa and, and asks us to draw these connections across time and place. So it's, it's appealing to us to see all these things as connected so that the little story 
Um, if you go back to the idea of the web, you know, if everything's connected, if you do something over one side of, of the web, something on the other side of the web is going to quiver. And that sense of these fine connections between very small things is one of the great pleasures of the book. And if you're reading it patiently enough, you'll see them and you'll realize that because Dorothea did this over here, this happened over here. You know, because Will was in this room at this time, this happened, this happened somewhere else. And it changes, it changes people. It, it gives you a sense of enormous responsibility, right? If you in your corner of the web do something, you can't be sure how you're affecting something at, at the other side. And that, again, is one of the organizing principles of the book. Be careful what you do, because it may be affecting somebody somewhere else. You know, it is a, a great story. They are great characters, and they have a great dramatic appeal. What will happen to them? How will they work their way through this? So you have to let the narrator be a character, too, I guess I would say. Listen, reading it out loud is a great way to do it. <laughs> it takes a little while. Maybe that'll be our next project together. You can read the entire book aloud <laughs> to our audience. I'm sure there's some great <laughs> audio audiobook versions of it. But again, the, the quality of the language yes. gets to unfold for you, and, and then you can appreciate it. Near the end of the BBC adaptation, Judy Dench does a little voiceover. The great sacrifice in any adaptation is usually the narrator's voice, and for Middlemarch, that's an enormous loss. I'm trying to remember now with Tom Jones, the film back in the early 60s, they the, the narrator in. was in in there, and he was yeah. a he was a lovely kind yeah. of yeah. But if you think presence. even of all the uh, Dickens adaptations, you know, without the language, it's it's really just quaint stories. It mm. can be fabulously interesting and entertaining, but there's a whole layer that's not there. And, and with Elliot's narrative, how do you do? But why always Dorothea? You know, do you interrupt a scene? Yeah. I suppose you could, but mm -hmm. I haven't seen anybody try it. Just start it and then chop it off and go to someplace else. Nobody would understand. And yet they did that with Tristram Shandy not that long ago. The well, I haven't movie. seen the recent uh, yeah. adaptation of it. You could put the narrator. Didn't they put the narrator in as a as a kind of character? Oh yeah, they put yeah. the f whole film crew in there, you know, stopping yeah. the scene and starting it, and yeah. very postmodern. But it's a wonderful book. It never disappoints. How many books can you say that of that you've taught two or three times a year for well, a decade and a half at least? So that would be my that probably be my final word. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rowan Mason, who is an English professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax.